0: Take your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter number 20. We'll kind of go through the chapter, uh, highlighting a few verses to familiarize you with the passage. And hopefully at the end of the message, we can kind of make some life applications. The Bible says, beginning in 2 Chronicles, chapter number 20 and verse number 1, It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other beside the Ammonites, that is those of Mount Seir, so that's really three nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the children of Seir, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Now, I'm no mathematician, but I do understand when you get in a fight. Three against one is not necessarily good odds. Verse number two. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying... There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea, on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazaz tamar which is in Gedi. Now, skip down. I just wanted to show you that I tried to practice how to pronounce that word. Go down to verse number 12. The Bible says, after Jehoshaphat has learned of this incoming presence, these military leaders and these kingdoms coming against him, in his homeland, ready to besiege there in Jerusalem, we find here in verse number 12, the end of Jehoshaphat's prayer. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. Have you ever been there? Have you ever faced a battle in life that was so great, so above your pay level, that you just came to God and said, God, I'm looking to you because I don't know what to do. I like what Jehoshaphat now says in verse number 12. He says, but our eyes are upon thee. We're not looking at the battlefield and we're not looking at the incoming enemy presence. Lord, our eyes are upon thee. The skip down to verse number 14. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Beniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. This old boy just starts, uh, stands up and starts to praise the Lord and prophesy. And he said, Hearken ye, all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. Listen to me. For the battle is not yours, but God's. What a great promise of Scripture. Verse number 20. And they rose up early in the morning. They went forth to the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, if we haven't heard enough, if it wasn't enough to hear the, the, the man stand up and prophesy and say, The battle is the Lord's. Now you listen to what your king has to say. Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, listen, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir and which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. Now, I don't know exactly what happened here. You read a lot of commentaries, and guess what? They're guessing at what happened here, but it seems that God, in one way or another, when the children of God began to praise, the enemies turned against themselves. That's what happens. I don't understand it all, but the Scripture teaches that is true. The Bible goes on to say, verse 23... For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Mount Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. They in-fought. They fought against each other. And when, the, and when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off them for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoils. It was so much. Never shot an arrow, never slung a sword, but yet God gave them the spoils of war. Now, dear friend, in the Christian life, we face battles, and there, of that there can be no question. If you've been saved for any length of time, you realize that just because you're saved does not mean you are insulated from all the problems that this world comes with. Every day is a spiritual battle. In fact, the Scripture teaches that the Apostle Paul... Uh, kind of encouraged and comforted his uh, uh, son in the faith Timothy when he says, "But thou endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ." He spoke many times about warfare and uh, spiritual warfare in the Christian life. In Ephesians chapter six, he encourages the Christian believer to put on the whole armor of God because we are soldiers in God's army. And in that, the end of his life, as he's kind of concluding his thoughts to this son in the faith Timothy. He says of his life, I have fought a good fight. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you realize it is a fight and it is a battle. So I I take great comfort when I read where where the Bible says that the battle is not ours, it is the Lord's. That means the Lord's fighting for us and He's on our side and any weapon formed against us shall not prosper and greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. I take great comfort that God is fighting my battles this morning. But that means that our battle is out of our control. We're control freaks. We like knowing what's going on. And we like making our plans. And we like having it all planned out, mapped out, so that nothing bad happens. But if the battle is the Lord's, then I, I guess then that means that we don't determine the direction of the battle. There's ebbs and flows to every war, and there's good days and bad days in the Christian life. There's some days that are harder and some days that are easier, but it's all a fight. It's all a battle. We can't control that, that particular aspect of the Christian life. We also don't control the duration of the battle. You know, we can't control how long our battles last. The Apostle Paul spoke of one battle in his own personal life that lasted many, many years. In fact, he prayed that the Lord would take it away and he never would. He fought that battle. Maybe you fight battle of health. Uh, health issues, maybe you fight the battle of, uh, 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 of strongholds in your life. Man, my friend, God, doesn't, God fighting our battles determines the duration of these battles. If He's fighting our battles, we don't have control of these things. And then, the ultimate decision of the battle is up to the Lord. Whether we win or lose by everybody's opinions, if the battle is His, it's up to Him. Our goal in the Christian life, in every battle, ought not be to win or lose. It ought to be glorify God no matter what. Amen. So there's so much, if the battle is Lord's, out of our control. So maybe then there's another lesson in this passage. Something that can teach us, that can, we can borrow from Jehoshaphat and this wonderful story of, of God's people being so remarkably helped in this time of war. Maybe there's a lesson for us this morning. Verse number 1, I want to point out to you what the Lord has given me through this passage. And it came to pass after this also, that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, with them other beside the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat. If you're there with me, what's the next two words? To battle. We've already established battles exist in the Christian life. Now I want you to skip down to verse number 26. And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the, in the valley of Baracha. And there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the same place was called the valley of Baracha unto this day. Now, this is kind of special and kind of interesting, but you know what that word Baracha means in Hebrew? Blessing. Verse 1, battles. Verse 26, blessing. Today I want to talk to you about this thought, turning your battles into blessings. How to turn your battles into blessings. I want you to see, first of all, if you're going to do this, you must have an established purpose. How do we turn our battles into blessings? Number one, turn our, we must have an established focus. Verse number three, and Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. Somebody comes up to to Jehoshaphat and they say, Hey, Jehoshaphat, this is bad news, buddy. I know everything's going well. I know we've just had spiritual revival in the kingdom. I know things seem to be progressing quite well. But I just went over the mountain there and I saw coming through the valley a great cloud of dust that drew my interest. As I looked over to the valley, I saw there not only the children of Moab, Not only the children of Ammon, but I saw the children of Seir, of Mount Seir. There's three kingdoms coming to fight against us. Jehoshaphat, I know things have been going well, but it's not going well now because we're about to be in war. If that was your message, if somebody came to you and gave you such bad news like that, what would your first reaction be? Maybe to call the insurance agent. Hey, uh, just got in a car wreck. Maybe to uh, uh, check on your medical insurance. Hey, do you cover that? Maybe you get bad news about something that's gone wrong in your family. Maybe you call a family member, a loved one. What's your first reaction when bad news is delivered to you? Let me tell you, the wisdom of this passage begins here in verse 3. Jehoshaphat feared, and so what did he do? He set himself to seek the Lord. He didn't set out to win the battle. You with me? He, he didn't set out to make good plans. He didn't set out to get all of his counselors and all of his advisors of war together and say, alright, we got three against one, what do we do, guys? His plan was this. I want to know the Lord. It's the focus of my life. It's the focus of my heart. And if I know the Lord, enough, I know the Lord's will for this kingdom, God will fight our battles. This was the focus, the chief focus of the Apostle Paul's life. In fact, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things for loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. The primary goal of the Apostle's life was not to win the world for Christ. It was to know Christ. Knowing Christ helped him win the world for Christ. What's the focus of your heart? What's the focus of your life? So many people set out for such worldly gain to get the promotion, to get the next pay raise. My friend, that is such a foolish goal. If you will set out to know Christ, no promotion and no pay raise and no increase of uh, influence could ever uh, overcome or be better than knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? You see, first of all, we can know Him as Redeemer. We can know Him as Redeemer. The Bible speaks the term of redemption, and the closest English word equivalently we have is ransom. This paints for us a decent picture, but not an adequate one. You see, the idea of a ransom is somebody is kidnapped, They're taken away to no fault of their own. Perhaps they have a rich daddy or a rich uncle or or maybe a rich family member. The kidnappers take their loved one away. They call them up and, with a creepy voice on the phone or send a letter in the mail. They say, we want X number of dollars so that you can have your family member back. That's the idea of ransom in our culture. That is not the term or the idea of redemption in the Bible. Though close, they are not the same. In Bible times, redemption served to help when somebody had gotten into debt way over their head. For instance, there would be a time where somebody would come and they would say, Hey, I need some seed to plant my field. They would project that if they planted this much seed, their field would produce this much harvest, and they would be able to pay that much seed back With interest. They would plan on that. The problem with that is they planted the seeds hoping for the harvest, but sometimes the harvest never came. And sometimes these folks would get way in over their head. And they would have debt so much so that they could not pay back. The Bible mandated, the law mandated, that in this event what would take place is that person, the indebted person, would become servant to the lender. That's how it happens. And what uh, the Bible pictures most of the time when it comes to redemption is an absolutely astronomical debt that nobody could afford. In fact, there's a parable told by the Lord Jesus Himself. It's that of the indebted servant. The Bible says that the indebted servant owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, what's unique about that is this king does not need to borrow money or or to lend money to his servants. If he was just a servant of the king, like a butler or so, he would just be on the pay staff. This guy had borrowed from the king, and now he's indebted to the king. He is a servant of slavery, essentially. But the problem is, 10,000 talents doesn't resonate with us. We have no idea what that means. It helps to understand that a talent is not a denomination of money. It is a weight of money. One talent, if a man possessed one talent, he was considered a rich man. 10,000 talents equates to 60 million days of work. It's an unreachable amount. I mean, this is, this is uh, farther than just going to the sock drawer, getting between the underwear and the, the dress socks and pulling out a little bit of money to pay your debt. This is more than calling up your rich uncle and say, hey, uncle, I got in a bind. This is a little bit more than I can handle. Can you help bail me out? This is an amount that is unattainable. This is an amount that is unpaid. You cannot pay it back. This is out of the realm of possibility for any of us. And the Bible teaches that this man forgave that debt. There was only two ways that this could occur according to the law. The first way was that a near kinsman redeemer could pay your your debt. Uh, A brother or a a near in-law could come, pay your debt and redeem you and free you. That would be a great thing. There was also a way that you could be freed from this indebted servitude. By uh, On every 50 years, they would have what's called the year of jubilee. And on that year, everybody was freed from debt. Everybody was given a contract. How many of us could use a year of jubilee in America? That would be a real blessing, amen? That would be great. Yeah, we would all go in debt way under our eyeballs like, oh, it's the year of jubilee. Yippee. That's what we would all do. But the whole purpose of that year of Jubilee was to indicate that God's people were never to be owned. That the only person that possessed the children of God was God Himself. Nobody could own them. We're talking about an unbelievable amount. One that is far beyond comprehension. One that is more than what we could do. And yet, the Bible teaches that we were so indebted because of our sin. That one day, there was going to come a time where the IRS man was knocking on your door. Where you would know that Though you've worked your whole life to be a good person and though you've given to good causes and though you've tried to do the right thing most of the time, when that IRS man came up, you would only be able to pay small portions as a down payment. You couldn't afford the whole sum total. I mean, if you had won the lottery, found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and on top of that pot of gold was a lamp with a genie in it, you could not afford this amount. And there that IRS man sends in your door saying, Hey, it's time to pay up. It's time to pay up. I've come to collect. The Bible teaches that it is appointed unto man all once to die. After this, the judgment. That's the IRS man knocking on your door. Coming to you, waiting for your payment. And the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ showed up just as you reached out your hands that he might put the shackles on your wrist. And he showed up just in time and he said, I own the cattle on a thousand hills and I have the treasury of all of heaven uh, and my access. But listen, if I gave you all the cattle and I gave you all the wealth of heaven, that in and of itself could not redeem this man from his debt. And so our head bows low and we wait to feel the cold clinch of those shackles on our wrists as the IRS man takes us off to hell and eternal destruction. When just in time, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world says, oh, though I own the cattle on a thousand hills, and though I have access to all the wealth of the world in heaven combined, though they would put those all together, this could never redeem this man's salvation. I went to Calvary, and I poured out what only could redeem this man. I gave the most precious and the most valuable thing in world history so that this man might be redeemed. That is the idea of redemption. Being hauled off to prison and just in time Jesus says, wait, I have redeemed this one. The Bible says, for we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but we are redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without spot or blemish. You see, you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know him as your redeemer? You can. You can, the Bible says, all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is receive and believe on His name. You can know Him as Redeemer. You see, we not only know Him as Redeemer, we know Him as Reliever. You see, Jesus Christ promises to help us bear the burdens of this life. In fact, Jesus in His early ministry... After his public uh, demonstration or kind of an uh, introduction by John the Baptist, he's baptized. The Bible says he goes out into the wilderness being led of the Spirit to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights. He returns. He goes to a wedding in the Cana of Galilee. And then he goes back home to Nazareth. Now this is very early on in his ministry. Very, very early on. So far, we have no public teaching of the Lord. There is no record that he's taught a lesson in a public way. He goes to the synagogue there in Nazareth. A- as he's in Nazareth, they bring to him the scroll of Isaiah. And they hand it to him. And he can select wherever he wants to read. But the place that he reads is this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Listen. he hath." sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You want to know, sometimes I have a hard time coming up with what I'm going to preach. There's so many good things in this book. I have a hard time narrowing it down. Jesus, when given the opportunity to speak on His very first sermon, you know what He said? I came to help. I came to heal. I came to restore. I came to relieve. I came to redeem. Jesus Christ came to help us fight the battles that we face. The battle is not yours. It is the Lord's. We know Him as Redeemer. We know Him as Reliever. This blows my mind. We know Him as Rewarder. The Bible teaches this. He that cometh to God must believe that He is. Listen, don't miss this. And that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Boy, just a few moments ago, we were so far in debt, we could never pay a way out, and now God's telling us He's about to reward us? The Bible actually teaches that He rewards us in many ways, but one of the ways that He'll reward us is the Bible says that at the end of time, He will give all His children these crowns, and these crowns will be uh, somewhat uh, 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 reminiscent or rewards for what we've done in this life, and whether we've lived for Him, and whether our works will be burnt up like wood hand stubble, or whether they'll come out as precious stone and jewels. And, and the Bible says that if we will live for God and we'll love His appearing, that we will get maybe a, a, a one of these crowns, And then the Bible says in the book of Revelation in chapter number 4, that on that day when all of heaven is singing Jesus Christ's praises and that He is the worthy Lamb that has redeemed us all from every tribe and every nation, He alone is worthy. The Bible teaches that on that day, all of us will realize that any good thing that happened in our lives in this world was only a result of His good grace in our life. And the Bible says the four and twenty elders, they take off their crowns. And they're seated around the throne of God. And they begin to cast those crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, you know why we do that? It's because we all realize that we were still debtors. And that we don't deserve the rewards that our God gives us. He is a rewarder. Friend, do you know Him? Do you know Him? you can the bible teaches us that you will know him you will find him if you will seek after him with all your heart oh god's been looking for you for a long time would you just turn your heart open up to him and say lord if you're looking for me i want to be found of you jesus christ the bible says if you will draw nigh unto god listen to me he will draw nigh unto you do you know him Jehoshaphat had an established purpose in his life. It wasn't to win battles. It was to know the Lord. Secondly, not only have an established person, uh, a purpose, but secondly, have an enduring patience. This is what every child of God likes to hear about on Sunday morning. Let's just all get patient and wait on the Lord. Verse number 15. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Everybody's excited. All right, let's go fight. Verse 16. Tomorrow. What? I thought you just said we were going to win. Well, you're going to win tomorrow. If you go fight today, you'll lose. You fight tomorrow, you'll win. it goes on and says, Go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook, before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves. Listen. Stand ye still. Isn't that what we all like to do? Boy, we're all good at that. When do we fight? Tomorrow. What do we do right now? Stand still. That's tough. Look, the Bible teaches in verse number 12 that Jehoshaphat had turned his heart to God in prayer and he said, Lord, we're looking to you. We don't know what to do. We're out of answers. We're out of solutions. We don't have, we don't have a direction, Lord. It's all up to you. God says, all right, wait. Wait. You know, it's not dissimilar from what the Lord told Moses to do at the Red Sea. Oh, all those children of Israel, they see Pharaoh's army closing in behind them. They're trapped in by the land and Pharaoh's army coming with anger. Man, they got steam blowing out their ears both ways. The Bible teaches that they began, the children of Israel began to complain. They began to murmur against Moses. I think what they did is what we like to do oftentimes. The Bible says, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness. You know, a lot of times when we have the battles of life and we don't know what to do, where to go, we're tempted to blow up on anybody around. Sometimes we blow up towards God. God, what are you doing? I live for you. I try to be right with you, Lord. I'm trying to know you. And all of a sudden, I have this battle in my life. We blow up sometimes. Then sometimes we speak up. They said, is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? You know, they say, I told you so, Moses. Isn't that so helpful? Isn't that just always so encouraging when somebody looks at you? Maybe it's your wife sometimes. Maybe it's your teenage daughter, your teenage son. I told you that's what was going to happen. You know, sometimes we look at God and say, I told you you wouldn't keep your promises to me. I told you you wouldn't be good if I'd be good to you. I told you so. So we blow up and we speak up. And sometimes, here's the sad part, we end up giving up. We give up. Here's what they say. For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. What a shame. It's funny how they start recounting Egypt with revisionist history. Oh, we had it so good in Egypt. I mean, those whips upon our backs weren't quite as bad as what we thought they were at the time. You know, as we're out here in the wilderness just following God's glory in the cloud by day and the pillar by night, pillar of fire by night, you know, I'm thinking about those whips hitting me on the back. It wasn't quite as bad as I remember. And they say, It'd been better for us to go back, give up, retreat. You know what? No battle's ever been won with a white flag hanging over anybody's head. Don't give up. Don't blow up. Don't speak up. Speak out of turn. Begin to criticize God and everybody else around you that's ever promised you that God would be good to you. Don't do that. Here's what Moses had to tell the people. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still. When are you going to fight? Well, tomorrow if that's when God wants us to fight. What do we do today? Just stand still. Just wait on the Lord. This is a hard truth for us to grasp, but the Bible says in Lamentations, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good to wait on the Lord. It doesn't say it's easy. <laughs> it doesn't say it'll be fun or relaxing. but It says it's good. It says it's good. A mother one day called 911 dispatch in an absolute panic. She said to that dispatcher, Ma'am, I'm terrified. I'm worried about my child. My son went outside and he began to put fire ants in his mouth. I don't know how many he ate, but I know they're crawling everywhere. He ate all those fire ants. She said, What do I do? Do I take him to the hospital? What do I do? The dispatch, obviously trained under pressure, was calm and quiet. And she said, Ma'am, The best thing for you to do is give your son a big dose of Benadryl and let him sleep it off. The mother said, okay, how's that going to sit with the ant killer I gave him earlier? Sometimes in our panic, we go rushing around thinking we have all the answers to solve all of life's dilemmas, and God just says, wait. Patiently wait on the Lord. Psalm 37 says, Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of Him that prospereth in His way. You may look at others and say, well, things are going well for them. You know what God's plan for you is? Just wait. Just calm down. Learn God in your panic. Learn God in your panic. Number one, have an established pers- purpose. Number two, have an enduring patience. And number three, have an enthusiastic praise. You cannot read this passage and miss this. You have missed the whole thing if you've missed this. Verse number 21. And when he had consulted with the people, and he's just preached to them a sermon, they'll look to God and believe his prophets. Now he makes a plan. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army to say, Praise the Lord, for His mercy endureth forever. What does Jehoshaphat do? Does he go out and pick his strongest men, his best archers, the ones that look the best in their armor so that they might intimidate the enemy? Nope. He puts a bunch of singers in front of them. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's good. Look, this is very important. Verse 22. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. Here's the question I want to ask you. If they never start singing, do they ever win the battle? Because it wasn't until they began to praise the Lord that God fought their battle. When will we learn that praise should precede our victory? Praise persists even when you have doubts. You can see it all throughout the Word of God. You see, there's a time in the book of Job where all these... Times these people come and give him bad news. They say, "Job, your life's fallen to pieces. All your cattle have died, and all your sh- your herds have died. Your servants are dying. Job, everything's bad." He gets so far, and the very last news he gets in chapter one is this. Job, your children that you offer sacrifices for all the time just in case they've sinned. Job, the ones that you love, they were all eating together and having a banquet. Man, all of a sudden, the house fell down on them. All your children are dead. Job, you're broke and you don't have any family. Your life is forever changed. You know what Job says? He arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down on the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Listen, blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a time in David's life where he is the anointed king of Israel. Now King Saul still, st- still sits on the throne, but he is the anointed king of Israel. He's running from Saul, though he's never been anything but friendly and kind to Saul. He's running from Saul because Saul wants to kill him. And he's doing everything in his power. He's using all the military resources that Israel has at his disposal to track down, hunt, and kill David because he views him as a threat to his throne. David played the harp for Saul. Now he wants to kill him. David bore Saul's armor. Now he wants to kill him. He's fleeing from Saul. And this is how bad things get in Israel. David runs... To the king of Gath for comfort. Now may I give you a little Bible lesson. Does anybody know where Goliath was from? Gath. You know times are bad when you're trying to go get comforted by the enemy. He finally arrives there in Gath, and the people say, the servants of the king say about David, they say, is not this David, the anointed king of Israel? Is this not the one they've sung the songs about? Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. David gets fearful because he realizes he's been recognized. This story gets incredible because David begins to act like he's a crazy man. He's got beard running down his—he's uh, got beard running down his spittle, or the reverse, one of the two. He's got things going crazy. He acts like a madman. The king looks at him and says, "Have I any need for madmen in my kingdom?" They let him go. You say, why do you tell this story? Because in that moment where he's running from Saul and he's rejected by the enemy, here's what David writes. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Paul and Silas instructed to go to Macedonia. They've been looking for direction. They've been looking for leadership. They want to preach the gospel anywhere where God has prepared the hearts of those to hear the gospel. They're looking to go and all of a sudden Paul receives a vision. He's to go to Macedonia. A man comes up in his mind and says, Come over, we need your help in Macedonia. So God has clearly sent them to Macedonia to preach the gospel. They get there. They have a little ministry success. They meet a lady by the name of uh, Deborah and, and she gets, uh, uh, they instruct her and help her. There's a woman there that has a spirit of divination. They cast out that spirit and she meets the Lord and gets gloriously born again. Because of this, they are cast in prison. They say, nobody asked you to do that. Nobody asked you to come here with this gospel. And I can just imagine what most of us would be doing in that prison. God, why'd you send me all the way to Macedonia just to look at the best prisons in Macedonia? You brought me all the way here. You couldn't even put me up in a Motel 6. You had to put me in the the barred inn. This is where you've got me, Lord. You put me in jail. We're just trying to follow you. We're just trying to live for you and you put me in prison. But the Bible says at midnight, they sing praises unto God. How do we do that? You see, God is always worthy of praise whether or not our circumstances dictate that He is. God is always good whether or not things are going good. We all always ought to make the decision to praise the Lord. There's a sad story in the Bible where the nation of Israel has been taken captive by Babylon. Seems like a great majority of them are in the land of Babylon and they're depressed and they're missing home as I can imagine they were. The Bible says, sort of in a provocative way, in a, a way to kind of poke fun at them and jest them, the Babylonians, their captors, look at them and say, hey, why don't you just sing one of those songs of Zion for us? They're joking. They're like, this is your God. Your God's brought you all the way. Why don't you sing a song from your homeland, your captivity? We've got you where we want you. Why don't you just get all joyful and sing about your God now? The Bible says they look at each other and they can't muster up the energy and they say they take their harps and upon the willow trees they've hung them. And they ask this question, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? How can we be happy when things aren't going well? How can we be excited about God if we're in a place we don't like or in a situation we don't like? Here's the answer. Because God not only reigns in Zion, He reigns in Babylon. God not only oversees the good times of life, He oversees the bad times of life. The same God that spoke into existence the mountains is the same God that carved out the valleys. And we ought, to be able to create, uh, we ought to be able to praise the Creator whether or not we're going into the valley or whether we're on top of the mountain. God is always and at all times worthy of our praise. Will you make the intentional decision to praise the Lord? Friend, if we're going to turn our battles into blessings, We must have an established purpose. Don't set out to win the battle. Don't set out to show everybody that you're right and they're wrong. Set out to know the Lord. That ought to be the goal of life. Have an enduring patience. Wait on the Lord. If He asks you to fight tomorrow, you wait till tomorrow. And then have an enthusiastic praise. Always be a people of praise. Is there anybody today that can just maybe kind of agree with the psalmist that says, let the... Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you're redeemed, you ought to say so. And your redemption is not determined in Babylon. Your redemption is not term- determined in Zion. Your, your redemption is not determined whether there's a Democratic president or a Republican president. Your redemption is not dependent upon what others do. Your redemption is dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the settled work upon Calvary. And we can, as the redeemed, always say so.